Hello, and welcome to Capital Compass. We are the official podcast of the New York State Catholic Conference. I'm your host, Jillian. Today, in episode 28, I'll be talking with Dr. Catherine Ferrier about assisted suicide and what we can learn from Canada. Since 2016, Canada has allowed terminally ill patients to commit suicide with the assistance of a physician. However, in the past few months, they have been expanding categories for physician-assisted suicide. Their expansions have reached a worldwide audience. Some listeners may have heard about a Canadian Paralympian who was offered physician-assisted suicide when she sought to have a wheelchair lift installed in her home. This is just one of many stories of I guess you could say, bizarre reasons for qualifying for government-funded euthanasia in Canada. Currently, in the United States, 10 states have authorized physician-assisted suicide. Since the 2015-2016 legislative session, New York legislators have introduced versions of a bill that would allow terminally ill patients to commit suicide under medical aid. This bill is A995 in the Assembly and S-2445 in the Senate. Joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Catherine Ferrier, a physician from Canada, to discuss what we can learn about Canada and about the quote-unquote fast and loose assisted suicide laws being implemented and proposed. Dr. Ferrier is part of the Montreal Catholic Physicians Association and the president of the Physicians Alliance Against Euthanasia. She currently works in the geriatric outpatient clinic at the McGill University Health Center, seeing patients suffering from a variety of ailments related to aging, especially dementia. And she is also an assistant professor of family medicine at McGill University. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Now to start, can you explain to our American listeners what laws are in place in terms of assisted suicide? And what is currently being proposed to expand the laws in Canada? So first of all, euthanasia and assisted suicide are not the same thing. Uh, We have mostly euthanasia. So that means that the doctor actually injects a substance into the patient that makes them die. And assisted suicide, as it is in the U.S., for example, the doctor prescribes an overdose of pills and the patient takes them home and decides whether they take it or not. So that's a very, it's a different concept and it has their important differences. So both are legal in Canada, but, but euthanasia is by far the most common. So the Canadian law came in in 2016. In fact, in Quebec, where I live, it came in in 2015, just for the province. Uh, so we've been dealing with this for six or seven years. So the, the initial law was typically like many places for somebody who's terminally ill, who has unbearable suffering, who freely requests it, and who uh, there's no way of relieving their suffering. But even then, there were funny things there. Like, for example, there's no way of relieving their suffering that's acceptable to them. So that means there might be options, but the patient has chosen to refuse them. Also, there, uh, what is a grave and a, um, a serious and incurable illness? Well, that can be many, many things, right? Uh, advanced state of decline, that can be many, many things. Those are part of the criteria in the law. So that was the 2016 law. And then in 2019, uh, there was a court case of two people with long-term disabilities who said, hey, if, if dying people can get it, why can't we get it? And the, the court agreed with them. That was a Quebec court. And 
for reasons known only to them, the government did not appeal that decision. So it was a decision by a lower level court. There are three levels of courts in Canada, probably the same in the US. And um, they did not appeal the decision. So it compelled the government of Quebec and Canada to bring in a law that took out the requirement that people be near the end of life. So that law was passed in 2021. Uh, so we've been living with that for two years now. And in that built into that law was a provision saying, we exclude mental illness for the moment, but it will become legal in two years, which would have been March this year, but there was just a bill to delay it for one year. So that's still on the table, mental illness, um, but it's not legal yet until March, 2024. And there's a lot of controversy about that going on right now as we speak. Uh, people are starting to realize like how bad things are getting. Now, before I dive more into um, talking about euthanasia, you are currently the president of the Physicians Alliance Against Euthanasia, and it appears you feel very strongly about this issue. So can you tell our listeners how you came about that position? I've been thinking about this for a long time, and I never thought that it would, we would actually be facing it. Uh, you know, euthanasia or assisted suicide, it's directly ending the life of another person, or it's directly helping somebody to commit suicide. I think those are both morally evil for many reasons. And uh, and uh, so the first thing is that it's not it, it, it's not right. It's not part of medicine. And then the extra reasons are that there's a whole lot of issues about what makes people ask for it. And could could we have supported those people in other ways so they did not ask for death? I don't think there's any important distinction between euthanasia assisted suicide and regular suicide. And as a society, we've always tried to prevent suicide um, because we think that people's lives have value. And the euthanasia lobby came along and said, well, you know, autonomy is more important than life. Well, I think life is more important than autonomy because once you're dead, you don't have any more autonomy for one thing. Um, and you know, there are many, many stories in Canada now and also in other countries where this is legal of people being euthanized for very, very doubtful reasons uh, when probably they could have been helped to, to want to live. Speaking of very doubtful reasons, um, there have been talks about expanding the laws in Canada to practice to minors. Can you tell us about that? Is it true? One of the things that's under study by the federal government is what they call mature minors. Uh, so children over maybe 14 who are judged by somebody to be mature enough to make their own decisions. Uh, typically adolescents with cancer. The Quebec College of Physicians, which is our licensing body in my province, has proposed euthanasia for uh, infants under one year with severe disabilities um, and seem to be more concerned about the suffering of the parents than the suffering of the child. So that's been put on the table by that group. It hasn't really been popular with anybody else. Um, but yeah, children are being discussed. Everything is being discussed, really. The other thing that's being discussed is, is euthanasia by advance request for people with dementia. So you write a paper saying, if I ever lose my ability to make my own decisions, when I reach such and such a stage of decline, I want to be euthanized. And that is not legal, but there's a lot of pressure to make that legal. Now, how, you know, backtracking a little bit, how in Canada are people assessed to qualify for this? Uh, I think that's quite variable. Uh, I'm sure there are some doctors, you know, you can't get into the minds and the hearts of the doctors assessing the patients, right? So so we don't know what motivates them. But 
I think some doctors sincerely believe that they're relieving suffering. And so they try to honestly evaluate the suffering of the patient and, and to determine whether anything else could be done and so on and so forth. But that's not always the case. We know that's not always the case. There's a group called um, the Canadian, so medical assistance in dying is called MAID for short. So there's a group called the Canadian Association of MAID Assessors and Providers, which is a group of doctors who euthanize people. And recently, actually, in an American publication, New Atlantis, uh, a writer called Alexander Rakin uh, got hold of some videos of the training sessions of this group um, or education sessions of this group that were on Zoom. And it was quite uh, enlightening because, for example, they said, well, you know, some people publicly, a lot of these doctors have said, like, nobody is requesting euthanasia for poverty or homelessness or, or social problems. But in their videos, they say, well, you know, if somebody comes to you and the main issue seems to be poverty and you don't feel at ease like with that, well, you you don't have to do it, but you have to, you should send them to somebody else who will do it. So it's like the same thing. Right? Yeah. They will end up being euthanized because of their poverty. And people have been euthanized for social reasons, no doubt. One woman, for example, who uh, had multiple chemical sensitivities and she was under the poverty line and could not get housing where she felt well. Uh, she was euthanized on the basis of that diagnosis. So, you know, does that meet the criteria for the law? Well, actually, the criteria are so vague and so broad that they probably do. But that's the problem. Uh, there was a there was a, another there was a show on CBC, which is our national television network, uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, featuring a number of stories. And one of them was a young man in his twenties who was diabetic. And he had just lost his eyesight. So he had gone blind. So he had a severe and incurable disease. He had a loss of capacity. Um, and he contacted a doctor and was approved to be euthanized. And the only reason he wasn't was because his family found out about it. They saw one of his emails and they started a social media campaign and the doctor got scared and backed out. But that could have happened under the law as it stands. And, and so that doctor, you know, a new disability you suddenly go blind, you suddenly become unable to walk. There's a huge adaptation period of that. So, so the law says, if you're not at the end of life, you're, you need a 90 day waiting period. So 90 days is like nothing in somebody's life, right? You go blind and in 90 days, you have not adapted to being blind. You have a spinal cord injury and in 90 days, you have not adapted to the spinal cord injury. In fact, people, the suicide rate after spinal cord injury goes up for about two years at least and peaks at 90 days. So, uh, and, and then it goes back to the, after two years, it goes back to the same suicide rate as everybody else. So these people are actively suicidal and they're being approved for euthanasia, often suggested by doctors who are not specialists in their field. So the, the young person has a sporting accident, ends up in the emergency room, in the ICU. Some doctor who has not ever followed people with that condition over the years to know how they do, says, oh, you know, maybe you would like to have medical aid in time, assistance in time, and, and they do. So yeah, there are a lot of problems with how people who maybe sincerely think that this is really a great way of treating people, but they, you know, they they could have lived a lot of these people. For our listeners, this is why um, you may have gotten an email for us emphasizing to contact your legislators because this can obviously be a really slippery slope, and you know, um, assisted suicide is not a cure for those suffering. Right. We talk about a lot of being inclusive for all disabilities and everybody. But, you know, for your example on uh, the diabetic who lost his eyes, it, that's it's not a solution to 
commit suicide. You know, it's uh, we, we have to be helping these people rather than. That's right. And, you know, when, when the law, so the way the law got passed back in 2016 was focus on extreme suffering in people who have a few days to live, right? That's the only way they'll ever get a law passed. But then what happens? And they say, we'll have lots of safeguards so that nobody dies like unjustly. Right? But the problem with safeguards is you turn you, you turn around the, the opposite side of the coin of a safeguard and you say, well, that's an obstacle to something good that I want, right? So these disabled people that went to court, they said, you know, the, this safeguard that says you have to be dying, well, you know, for us, it's, it prevents us from getting what we want. So, you know, people who propose laws, and I don't know what the what they're proposing right now in New York, but probably it says, you know, there'll be lots of safeguards to make, make sure that it's only people in very term, very particular conditions, but that that doesn't work. And I think that's one important thing that you can say to your lawmakers is just look at Canada. Safeguards don't work, right? Safeguards become like uh, discrimination, right? And in fact, now when they're talking about mental illness, so, you know, mental illness, one of the symptoms of mental illness is that you get suicidal, right? So the people promoting euthanasia for mental illness are saying, well, you know, it's an illness just like everybody else. Why shouldn't they get it if other people can get it? And a lot of, you know, mental health professionals are saying, yes, but being suicidal is part of their disease. Um, and uh, and we're not helping them. In fact, there was an article published today by, there's um, a clinical psychologist in Quebec City, not far from here, who um, has a bipolar disorder herself. And she um, has written a lot on this subject and she's testified to the government. And she actually, it took 20 years of thinking that she just had recurrent depression. Uh, and she was a clinical psychologist before she found out that she had a bipolar disorder two years ago. And so basically she was not tr being treated for the right disease. Um, and now she is, and seems that she's a little bit better, but you know, she said, you know, I've been suicidal many times. I would have been eligible for medical assistance in dying under these laws. Um, but you know what? The law protected me. And that's, that's what the law is for. It's to protect people. Right. But that's, that's the worry. I mean, you're ta we're talking about expansions in Canada about mental health. Do you think there will ever be an end to expansions or do you think they're just going to try to keep tacking them on? Well, you know, I think that people promoting it, what they basically want is death on demand. Um, you know, the, the the Quebec College, the same one that's talking about infants, they said, well, maybe we should start a conversation about people who are tired of life. So in, in the Netherlands, they're having the same conversation about people who are tired of life. You know, you're 80 years old and life is not so much fun anymore. And and so, well, you know, you've, you've done everything you wanted to do and why don't you just end it now? So that's whatever. I mean... You know, I don't think they'll stop until there are no more limits, um, because every limit is seen as a discrimination. And there's a lot of money in the in the pro euthanasia organizations. I, uh, a lot of money, a lot of political power, at least here, probably in the U.S. too. Actually, our uh, our last podcast episode, we were talking about the abortion medications and how that is a big um, industry for yeah. money. Yeah, for sure. It appears to, you know, all of this appears to be kind of an extension of the concept of authorizing doctors to terminate the life of a child born because of a quote-unquote botched abortion. And all of this really indicates a lack of respect um, for human life and dignity. How have these concepts become, you know, so mainstream in Canada? So, so di the, the word dignity has been redefined, right? So all these were like the main... Um, pro-euthanasia groups are called like dying with dignity, right? So, so it's more dignified to have a doctor inject you and you go peacefully than to be demented and, and uh, incontinent and all of these things that 
Like, you know, there's a lot of things that happen to people at the end of life that are not pretty. But is that what dignity is about? Dignity is not about like what you look like. And dignity is part of who you are, right? So everybody has dignity regardless of what they can do. But dignity has been redefined to define somebody who's like healthy and autonomous and doesn't need anybody to wipe their bum when they go to the bathroom, you know, um, because that is undignified. And people would say, I would rather die than have that. Um, and that's that's what we're dealing with. That's a, that's a pretty drastic uh, choice. I would rather die than needing a little bit of help. Um, yeah, well, sometimes it's a lot of help, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's totally dependent. Yes. And sometimes it's people who have seen someone in their family. That happens a lot, right? People have had a bad experience. You know, healthcare is far from perfect here, and I'm sure it's perfect, far from perfect in the U.S. either. And sometimes people's last days, weeks, months are not necessarily handled that well, right? Um, and so maybe somebody in their family sees that and said, oh, no, you know, kill me first, right? getting old and demented kill me first somebody had a parent with alzheimer's disease who who had behavior problems or whatever you know i I don't, I don't want to go through that it's like contrary like for for centuries we've protected vulnerable people right and now it's like we're going to eliminate vulnerable people and people feel like it's an autonomous decision but it's really part of the ageism and ableism that are in our society right um like i don't want to be like them so i'll go out being like me as i am now now, last year, um, we actually had a palliative care doctor on the podcast. So what I want to talk about is, is it safe to say that instead of promoting, you know, all this assisted suicide and euthanasia as a society, we should really be looking at expanding palliative care and helping those suffering from mental health concerns? Of course. I mean, palliative care, at least here, is mostly focused on people who are relatively close to the end of their lives. And many of them have cancer, although theoretically it's open to any diagnosis, but it's harder for, to predict that somebody's dying when they have heart disease or something like that. So yeah, palliative care. In fact, we know that in Canada, of the people who could benefit from palliative care, um, about 70% don't get it. Uh, so that's a big gap, right? And uh, and that's part of it. But and, and so people who are identified as approaching death Palliative care is great, right? It relieves suffering, the physical, psychological, uh, a lot of things like that. There are other people who are seeking euthanasia now who are not really candidates for palliative care. It's people who are in other situations in their life. Another person who was on that show a couple of weeks ago was a, a disabled man who couldn't make ends meet on his disability pension. And he was about to lose his apartment that he could be just barely afford and couldn't find anything that wasn't even um, more expensive. Um, and so he was... He had applied and was approved for euthanasia um, based on his disability, right? Uh, not on the fact that he was impoverished and about to lose his home. But what, what happened actually, that was a that was a, a good ending story, is that somehow his story went public and somebody started a GoFundMe page and raised sixty thousand dollars for him. And so he didn't have to get euthanized. And in in the end, he he was able to keep his apartment. And but he was saying, like, do I want to live on the street or do I want to be dead? I would rather be dead than live on the street. And so that's not even palliative care. It's just a social safety net for people that can't make ends meet because of whatever reason. You know, it could be somebody who's poor without even being disabled. It's easy to find a diagnosis to justify your euthanasia because, you know, it's so vague, the definition. Yeah, I saw that uh, news article. And honestly, I could see that if it were illegal in the United States, I could see that happening. And I think it's really important for us especially as Catholics, to look at how we can help others um, and alternatives. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the church has a long history of uh, 
of looking after marginalized groups, right? And that's uh, something we have to keep on doing. And in a sense, it's a counterweight to the Tunisia lobby. One thing I, I wanted to mention is that I think it's very important to not frame our position against euthanasia as a religious issue, right? Because as soon as you frame it as a religious issue, people say, well, well, you know, you can't impose your religion on me. Of course, yeah. And there's so many good human rights and, and human dignity uh, reasons and ethical reasons to, to refuse euthanasia. So we have to be careful how we frame things so that there are reasons that actually anybody could accept if they, you know, if they have an open mind and they think about it. Right? Of course. Why should New York and other states be looking at Canada as an example of why assisted suicide should not be legalized? So I think you can you can just look at what's happened in six years, right? So we went from this proposal of very limited number of people with very limited clinical situation and dying to you know anybody with chronic illness, uh, social problems, and soon mental illness in six years. So if they think that they can introduce it for very limited number of of people, like that is so false. You just have to look at us and, and see that it's it's totally not the case. Um, so I think that's it. That's in a sense we're serving as a as a example for the whole world of like what not to do. Are there ways that we can try to encourage people not to support this? I guess I'm trying to figure out the right way to say this. Yeah, I think I think you know the the ethical moral questions some people will accept and some won't, but the you know if this gets legal, it will eventually happen to somebody close to you. That is no doubt true, and and I think that that's that's happening here already. So you know you think that it's a kind of a theoretical thing for some stranger who's at the end of life and screaming in pain. And by the way, nobody has to be screaming in pain at the end of life, right? Because palliative care can treat that and can control that, well, one hundred percent, even if they have to sedate the person. But if you think that it's a theoretical thing for other people, it'll happen to your mother, your father, your cousin, your somebody, your next door neighbor uh, before you know it. If this once this comes in, and it will be, you know, it's almost we've already reached in Quebec. We we actually are the euthanasia capital of the world, right? We've reached a higher rate than Belgium and the Netherlands, which is which where it's been legal for twenty years. So. Um, so don't copy Canada. Yeah, um, yeah there's, there's lots of reasons. Safeguards don't hold up, right? Um, people want to die for reasons that could be transient, right? If you give them the social supports they need, they won't want to die anymore. But you can't just say, you know, you, you can't die and just, you know, good luck, right? You have to say, well, uh, how can we help you to, to want to live, right? The, this young man with the diabetes and the blindness, he actually was interviewed on this show. And the interviewer said, like, why did you agree to do this interview? And he said, he said, uh, it's 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 part of my effort to refind a will to live. And that's what his mother and his family were trying to do, right? To find a will to live for the, for this man. And, you know, people want to live generally. If they want to die, there's something really, really wrong. And and you got to find out what's wrong and fix it. I forget what your question was. Maybe I'm totally off the track, but but um, but yeah, so I, I think. You know, if we were a society where everybody who is in trouble had somebody to look after them, then we wouldn't be having this debate. And another root cause probably is the disintegration of the family, right? So a lot of people are isolated. They have no brothers and sisters, no children, no no near relatives. They don't even know their neighbors. Um, and so they just go through this whole process totally alone. That must be so terrifying. Right? 
Um, and so no wonder they would rather just, you know, end it now. So I think, you know, just look at us and you'll know what, what will happen if, uh, if New York goes that way. Thank you so much for being on. Okay. Pleasure to meet you. Thanks for listening to the Capital Compass podcast. And thank you so much to Dr. Catherine Ferrier for coming on the show. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be coming out with a new episode every other week. If you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And to catch all the latest from the conference, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at NYSCatholicConf and on Facebook at NYSCatholicConference. Thanks again, and God bless.